0: All right, John. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Excited. Are you excited? I'm super excited. You should cry. I
1: actually don't know what I'm excited about, but yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm stoked.
0: So, those who don't know that that guy right here is a good friend for seven years, right? We've been friends for I'm seven so years. I'm so sorry. <laughs> for, uh, yeah, sorry for you. Uh, we we know we work together in the EO group, which is Entrepreneur Organization. We actually we you together. you knew about me before because we you did a lot of things. Those... I don't know
1: how much we were working,
0: but nah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> And then uh, you exit your company, and I'm jumping, right? you exit your company called Shipmunk. not exit, you sold a piece of your company, Shipmunk mm-hmm. at a very high multiple, was a very high multiple, nine figure multiples, about a month after I did, right, or so, mm-hmm. uh, in 2020, we both kind of like cashed out, nice, and... Uh, The difference between you and I is that you're 29, you motherfucker. And all (laughs) those years when you're running the company, all I remember is I am right now in a safari trip. I am right now (laughs) snowboarding in Japan. While I was there breaking my back. And uh, yeah, so I think it would be awesome to hear how do you leverage lifestyle, doing everything. We're going to talk about a lot of his lifestyle, guys. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) Yeah. Uh While he was selling his business, uh, at uh, kind of like the interesting time in our life during COVID. So welcome. Welcome yeah. to the show. Thanks, Joe.
2: Appreciate it. Well
0: I'm learning about it for the first time. So I don't I don't
2: know what you guys no done together. Well. what kind of lifestyle what kind of lifestyle kind of adventures have you been on. So but so w- we'll w- want to say about,
0: about my 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 thing with, with John, right? So John started Shipmunk, which is a fulfillment logistic company, right? Filling up and packaging everything, going after the small small companies that wanted to ship up their goods online, right? And he had probably the most creative method I've seen, 2.0 type of, uh, shipping companies where the rest of them are very old school, uh, very, uh silverhead much silverhead industry where all of them are you come over to the office they don't even give you a glass of water because they are very technical they talk to you about what they're doing when you go to shipmunk it's kind of like you're going into a little party and event you need to <laughs> see his, his location and everything was geared towards experience for the consumer something they didn't do and you're a kid you were going into FIU FAU, F-A-U. international F-A-U. student
2: when okay yeah. so when did you when did you start because I was I was even doing a little bit of research and you built Shipmunk off, like, a 30K. Yeah, it award.
1: A, yeah, so, it, so like, the whole backstory, you know, I moved here in 2008 and then went to high school, played hockey for two years, got a scholarship, and then moved to FAU. Um, and I started the first business, which was similar to what Chipmunk is, but something different. where We are buying products in the U.S. and shipping them internationally. So... You know, got a little bit of my feedback in logistics and e-com. Uh, and this was back like 2010. I kind of started doing it. First for friends, eventually for kind of other people. And then 2014, I graduated and I won a business plan competition with like 27K of, of awards and, and prices. Um, and it got accepted to an accelerator program also at FAU. And so they gave me like a free warehouse space for a year. and additional, I think, 25K. So like by the time I graduated and was going to launch this thing, I had maybe like 70K in award prices. And this warehouse space for a year which just kind of was like an amazing runway to start a business with because i was deciding like okay do i want to take the risk and you know do business full-time or do i like try to go to work and like start a business on the side you know and so the 70k kind of gave me enough confidence that I can try to do this without, like, going to work and, you know, trying to do both. So,
2: But why why logistics? Like, how did you – okay, so you have 70K. Like, was it part of a competition? It was, like, a case study? So it was – yeah, no. So
1: the competition was a – it was a business plan competition. So I was basically pitching – what I was doing is, like, you know, if you lived in Europe and, like, you wanted to buy, um, I don't know, some specialized, like – clothing that wasn't really selling in Europe, right? Or they weren't shipping internationally. This was 2014. So a lot of companies didn't ship internationally. It was too complicated. It took too long. So we would basically provide the service of, we'll buy it for you and then we'll sell it. You know, we'll ship it over to Czech, let's say, and then like you'll have this product, right? We would give them an address in the U.S. essentially and then forward it over. So that was kind of the original concept. And with the business plan competition, the pitch was we'll take all that Put kind of an automated platform on it and then make it global. So like we don't just service Czech, but we service everybody. So that's how, you know, when I graduated, I basically like went on, hired like a developer and started building this platform. And then, you know, in the first year, somebody basically called me up and they're like, hey, you have this warehouse, we write about you in the newspapers. Like, can you do fulfillment for us? Mm-hmm. And so it kind of, you know, and I started looking at it, and I didn't really know what fulfillment was. And I was like, well, there's a big gap in the market for smb mid-market fulfillment um needs right because everybody still in 2014 this is 2014 yeah like okay. early 15
2: and what and explain like what the landscape was like because so, now it seems so easy you yeah know. well so, yeah. now i mean yeah. now there's a lot, you have of, lot of competition <laughs>
1: yeah. right yeah. but but uh, back in 2014 there was maybe one company that was servicing like the smb market because also remember what was like, that one company it's called shipwire um, they got acquired shipwire, shipwire yeah they okay. got acquired by Ingram Micro in 2013 okay. so the landscape like if you think about like shopify and like all these you know businesses that are starting online um, that whole era of these entrepreneurs starting an online D2C brand really started around like 2010 11 with shopify actually probably creating the best platform for that so all these like old school logistics companies, they kept working with like much bigger players, and it was a lot easier to manage, you know, four or five clients in a warehouse than two, three hundred. So nobody really wanted to get in because it was too complex. There was no software. There was no processes. Like it was very complicated, and so we didn't really know what we we're getting into. But it's like, well, nobody's doing it, or they're doing it terribly wrong. So let me try to get in that space and figure out how we can do it better. So we started building that solution to say. We can service, you know, 300 customers in a building or 500 customers in a building, build our own software to run the warehouse, our own software to kind of provide the um, order management, inventory management system to clients and kind of connect the two tiers. And then ultimately, you know, provide a service that at the time, not many companies were providing. And the other piece was, like Joe said, right? Like all these companies are old school logistics companies. So it's like they're run by, you know, like 50 plus year old dudes that, just are not, like, fun. They don't speak the same language as, like, most of these e-commerce founders that are millennials, that are very marketing brands driven. So we, you know, built a cool brand around Chipmunk, got a more millennial, you know, we wanted to kind of give this vibe of, of zen, right, which is why we picked the Monk as kind of our logo, as our mantra, and wanted to create a whole experience just a lot more modern, right, from the office space to, um, you know, any interactions with our people, like anything, it was just, it was trying to be, like, different. It was trying to be more of... I, you know, these are the people that speak the same language, not like, you know, it's like my grandfather, um, classmates, that are like running this company. Right. And that's going to the divide a lot of these other companies had.
2: Okay. It makes sense. So, um, when you, when you first launched this, you said, okay, so you have like whatever 70,000 bucks, you have warehousing, um, I guess somebody, you basically, somebody found out about what you were doing and then sort of prompted you to go down this route and build this out. And that was like one customer, but. Um, how did you find your first customers for the business? Like, what was it?
1: Yeah, so it was, um, so the first customer was the, the most random connection. Like, there was an article that came out That's about us. the person that us. called you
2: up and was like, hey, can yeah, you do yeah, this yeah. for me?
1: Yeah, so yeah. exactly. So it was uh, It was a company out of Fort Lauderdale, actually. They raised uh, a couple million bucks to build, like, smart home products for Apple. And so, yeah, so, like, this guy calls me up and he's like, hey, my wife, my CEO's wife read an article about you in the newspaper, and my CEO wants to support local business. Mm-hmm. Like, we should work together. And, you know, I didn't really know what he wanted because we didn't work with U.S. companies at the time. So I met with him. He basically told me, like, hey, we've had a terrible experience with our previous company and, like, we want to support you and and work with you. So that was, like, the first customer that even, like, explained what the space is like. And, you know, I went and met with them and I was like, man, this is going to sound great. But they were, like, a year away from launching their product. So... In the meantime, I started more, you know, researching the space, and I went to a couple of trade shows to really figure out, like, okay, maybe I can talk to a couple of customers to see if they can use us. Um, I went to CES in Vegas, which is like a consumer electronics show, because it just seemed to be like a logical place. And I basically just was like telling people, like, hey, you guys need fulfillment. Um, you know, there's plenty of startups in that like little startup section, and so I, cl- I closed maybe like first five customers. Um, you know, like most of these guys. Barely yeah, you, just you didn't have start a process it. built. Out. I didn't have anything. No, like I, I didn't even like know how I'm going to do this. Right. Like I was like, oh, you know, we have a warehouse in Florida and like, we're doing this for plenty of brands. I mean, it was like fake it till you make yeah, it yeah. for yeah. sure. We're like, we have this amazing you software. Didn't, did you, we, you
0: sign the deal at the time with that warehouse?
1: I no. So I had, I already was in the warehouse part of that accelerator program.
0: Right. Oh. But it was like thousands for the feet. customers. So okay. I, yeah. So go to the A, a thousand square show. feet. A thousand square yeah, yeah. feet. Yeah. I mean, it's like this <laughs> like office, this
1: exactly. Yeah, like um, and my DC, mindset yes. was like, Hey, well, I'll get the customers. I'll figure out how we're going to do this later. Yeah. Um, and that's exactly what we did. I came back from the show. I had probably five customers that I signed up. Most of them decided to ship us inventory without ever seeing what the warehouse looks like. Right. I even like, I remember I had one customer that I would come to visit and I would put, you know, cause it was a thousand square foot cage inside of a big building. So I put like fake boxes, like empty Amazon boxes that I just built to take off the tape and just put them on the shelf so it looks like there's some product. Theme.
0: I think that's how Costco, uh, Costco started. They they had empty space and they put empty boxes on top. Just to make it look like you're yeah, actually make it fun- look like functioning stuff. Business? yeah, have, yeah. <laughs>
2: that's really funny.
0: But
1: I mean, it's like, well, because you want to, I mean, that's the scariest thing, right? Like you finally get a customer, they want to yeah. come visit to make sure you're real. Yeah. You're not really real. <laughs> like, how do you do, yeah. like, how do you tell them, like, to give you confidence? And yeah, and like, we just, we did it. You know, we kind of sold the guy on the fact that like, hey, I'll be the one basically shipping your stuff and, he ended up signing up, even though he we had really nothing to sell at the time, and that's ultimately how it kind of started. So like, I signed up the first five customers. Then I brought in one of my college buddies to basically do commission only sales, um, and you know he would just call people. This is
2: like a super scrappy, oh, super super scrappy yeah. startup.
1: Very scrappy. I mean, it was like, yeah, and then this guy was just making commission only, right? Yeah. And and uh, we didn't, I I didn't know any revenue models or anything like that would. You tell me like how much you paid this guy. And so we just figured out some numbers and, you know, we didn't have a target customer. Like we didn't know anything. So I, this guy just, I bought a list for like $100 from my, uh, one of my friends Uh, It was like a list of medical device companies because we just thought maybe medical devices would be like a cool thing to do. Which, by the way, medical devices are, even today, we don't ship medical devices because they're so (laughs) complex. And like you need all these requirements, regulations. You need like all these certifications, like ISOs. And you're like, wow, like, we, you know, we spent like a couple hundred grand on compliance like now. And that was the first target customer that we went after. Like just that's how naive we were. But he was just dialing these guys in like calling every single one of them and trying to see like hey do you guys need fulfillment um and he did end up landing you know maybe i don't know two three customers and like it was a very slow progression from that point like we just signed up one two customers but because e-commerce was in such an inflection point at the time like a lot of these brands you know you'd sign them up they were doing 100 orders a month and then suddenly they would like skyrocket to like 500 right the the next month and thousand the next month and so organically as the brands we were onboarding were growing like we were growing with them so it was kind of a mutual just there was a huge benefit of they're growing we're growing you know we're onboarding you feel like like there
0: was um, a renaissance for the online sales throughout i don't know from 2013 because, because social media 2013 all the way to i would say 2020 and then 2021 collapse of the i mean some sort of a correction for that renaissance
1: yeah i mean i for sure i mean i think the it opened up the opportunities for anybody to start an e-com company, right? In 2013, I mean, you didn't really need a lot of money to do it. Like, yeah. could buy any white-label product or got an idea for product, right? Build it. Um, you know, Shopify would allow you to have the, the, the front end of it. We would allow you to have the back end of it. And, like, anybody could launch a brand within a couple months, right? And everybody wanted to do it because it's cool. And there's all these great success stories of people you know starting out of their garage building million dollar businesses and like basically working from home and like not having to have massive teams um and we were definitely riding that wave where you know i mean you like brands like yours right like it was just yeah. such a great time for for that it
0: was it was a great time to be alive and actually do it because i i just saw a billboard where it says uh, richard uh, the the owner of fashionova sent me this billboard that says 100 million uh, orders uh, just sold thank you fashionova bye shopify mm-hmm. that shows you that a multi-billion dollar brand works with shopify it shows that c- when you want to launch a business you don't have to worry about infrastructure anymore you don't have to worry about logistic infrastructure because you have the shipmunk. you don't have to worry about building your own website you have shopify and if you're a small business all the way to a multi-billion dollar you can still work with shopify so the, the ability to but it was more about supply and demand how many people are going to come fast enough before it's too late yeah. to go through that and, door. And, and
1: the challenge is like you know especially with what's happened with iOS 14 and like the challenge in advertising, right? Like during COVID, obviously the cost per acquisition for all these brands went zero, basically into nothing, right? Because everybody was buying online. Yeah. Nobody was spending on ads, like no travel. Like obviously a lot of these other industries just went to a totally away. And so these brands just got really spoiled with like, man, we're, you know, it's costing us three bucks to acquire a customer. And then... Things started normalizing, 21, right, yeah. and it started to like other people started advertising, which then naturally already increased the cost. But then you had this this huge, um, you know, shift in the, in the in the targeting, which just became even more difficult to ultimately get the same return. So, like we have examples of brands whose cost per acquisition, you know, went up 10x, 20x.
2: Okay, so this is what I've heard. I've heard that in 2022, that if you have positive ROAS on your first customer, you're a unicorn. Yeah, because it's so rare. So that's what the e-com environment is dealing with right now. So that means yeah. you have to have, like, your LTV on that customer has to be significant. Yeah. And you have to have, and also the attribution is all screwed up because of iOS, too, right? Exactly. So, I mean, like It's that, never really accurate. Yeah. It's never really accurate. Now there's actually um, there's actually tools that will somewhat replicate the accuracy. I can't remember the name of it now, but there are some e-com tools that rep, try and replicate the accuracy of, like, pre-iOS update Facebook. But, yeah. I mean google's pretty much all you have right for accuracy yeah. in terms yeah. of attribution right no and it's and it's
1: you know it's uh i think what's what's happened right and then, like we're kind of seeing it because we have a pretty broad customer base i mean we got i would say you know 1500 2000 brands that we work with they range from small like one a mo- you know one person 10 20 50 orders a month uh shop all the way to our largest you know is a uh, you know 200 million well now actually we sign up even larger ones, but like. Half a billion dollar brands that you know will do hundreds of thousands of orders. Right, so we have a pretty wide range of of companies, and I think where you see the biggest impact is the ones that um, have been solely relying on social media for acquisition um, have been getting obviously hit the hardest. Now, the other challenge that you throw into this is is this whole supply chain delay issue, where you know during COVID, like nobody could get their stuff in, so everybody over. Inventory- you feel it
0: gets stabilized now.
1: It's getting better. It's definitely not stable yet. So stable container freight—I mean, all the transportation pricing is coming down on the ocean and air freight. Like you know, we used to be what twenty-four k for container. Now that's yeah. coming down like pretty significantly. Sixteen, or I think it now mean? it's like yeah, 16 15 You know, it used to be before that it was two, four, five, yeah, two, th- yeah, two yeah. three. Sometimes you have five. Yeah, but it's um it's getting better, but it's still not there. But the problem is like everybody because they got so. Kind of they got their assets handed to them in like 2020 because all their inventory was sitting in the water while they needed it you know for peak then 21 they got all the inventory but they they weren't selling as much right yeah. and that's happening in 22 as well so right now like everybody has all this inventory but they're not really selling which is you know inventory is finance so it's costing them money so mm-hmm. that's kind of hitting their bottom line so even the brands that we work with that have been super profitable doing really well this year, they're just having really like tough time, major tough tough time, financial challenges. Right. And it's, you know, over inventory.
0: What's the challenge now for you outside of the supply chain issues? I mean, I was going to say, do you have to like yeah, change your, like your, your ICP, your
2: ideal customer profile? Do you have to like audit your customers a little bit better so that just
0: challenging so, your business? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, so I think, um scaling has always been a challenge right like when you grow you know we've been i mean we've grown to uh we're with 2500 people now so like in five six years like we have grown to 2500 people that in itself just how many locations 19 warehouses now? you have
0: 19 warehouses now yeah yeah wow in like
1: 11 locations so what's have, the
0: average size of a warehouse
1: uh i mean i don't know in an average we have three and a half million square feet okay yeah so i mean it just depends on the market but you know, I would say the biggest challenge is just making sure that as you grow, like you continue to stay agile and like be able to make quick decisions and, and, and the team scales with the growth. So like we're, you know, we're opening the, this year, I think we opened three, four new buildings and getting the team set up so that they can operate pretty quickly, right? Getting all the equipment ordered, order, getting the training done, getting everything kind of up and running. That's a really challenging piece because, you know, you're trying to deal with, three of those at the same time. And the amount of people that can actually train the people is there's very limited because we don't have that many people that have been with us for a long time. So you need to like replicate them, right? And then put the processes and the structure in place to allow us to do that over and over again. So I think that's generally the biggest challenge is to make sure you've got the right layers and the right people in the right spots to, um, to allow for that scale. So you know? you're
0: saying growing the business is more just a traditional scaling, tearing the business, finding the right people, is more challenging than the actual supply chain issue because it's still a massive space as it is yeah the so
1: so the challenge for us right like we don't get involved as much on the inbound part of the so like if you're our customer like you will typically work with somebody else to get the inventory over to us so it's, it has a big impact on our customers but we don't there's nothing really we can do I
0: guess my question on this one was supply chain issues plus iOS issues causing a shrinkage in uh, online sales and Yep. Is that more of a challenge than just scaling a business? So, or?
1: well, yeah. So, okay. So, that in itself is a challenge of like organic natural growth of our customers, right? So, okay. if you look at our customer base, uh, you know, the, the, like let's just say they've shipped, I don't know, whatever, 20 million orders in last year, right? That same amount of customers are probably going to ship. The same or less amount of orders in 22 Mm. because they've had all these challenges. So, all
0: those years, you basically had natural growth of each client and you just gotta make sure you retain the value of each. Now you have to keep chasing more clients. So, now we have to bring in new business. Yeah, so now we have to
1: bring in a lot more new business. Like, if we wanna hit the same percentage growth rate, like we have to bring in a lot more new business Mm. to offset the fact that our clients is not growing as fast. Because, like, in 2020, right, without doing literally anything, like, even if we didn't onboard any clients, we would just double our business, right? In 22, wow. you know, we need to onboard. Like this year, we're probably onboarding 100 million dollars of new business, and that's all you know, like new business that comes on. But then, obviously, the existing business possibly shrinks a little bit because of kind of the, the so, challenges that we So here's here's having. a
0: here's a question that I guess it's an evolution evolutionary part for a company like yours, or maybe not. So at first, you started with the lower hanging fruits, small mom and pops that nobody wanted to deal with. Now, with competition, everything are you trying to double down more on the big size companies more than the little ones
1: yeah it's a great question i think that's kind of the biggest like answer or question we're trying to answer internally right now the benefit of working in the mid-market small you know businesses is that it's very complex and not a lot of people can actually do it the downside is there's only so many businesses in that spectrum and a lot of them you know it's not very stable right so in the smb category overall like you bring them in and then some of them go out of business you know some of them are just you know it's it's a little bit harder to manage that piece of business if you sign up a 50 million dollar client you know you know that you're gonna have, they're gonna be most likely be there in five years you sign a longer term contract so there's a lot more stability but the margin profile is also very different right
0: so yeah i think it's um so you deal with them different than you deal with the mom and pop
1: for sure. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, you have a little bit of a different operations, you, you know, you, you put more effort into making sure that they typically build them kind of a more of a dedicated space in the warehouse.
2: And also then you have EDI and pallets and shit yeah, like that. Yeah, it gets a lot
1: more, yeah, more you are know, more omni-channel, right? They'll yeah. do B2B, they'll do B2C, they'll do, they'll need more buildings, they'll have, you know, a lot more kind of handholding. So like, I think we've, we've, operationally, it's not really an issue, but it's just naturally, if you go to upmarket, your margin string because you you know you're pricing that more aggressively, right?
2: And you and you have to. And now you're saying there's a lot of competition in your space. And
1: and yeah, I mean there's been a lot of competition because a lot of venture money have flown into the space. And you know we've been bootstrapped. like we've been, we've always put all the money um, kind of we we've always wanted to be profitable. So like a lot of our competitors that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars they. Throw money at acquiring customers and they'll pay to lose money, right? To, yeah. to serve them. Which is challenging for you. Which is challenging. If like if you're trying to make money and like you're competing against somebody that is okay to lose money, then like it's like, how do you win the deal? Like you yeah. can be better, but somebody's offering 20% cheaper service, like you just can't compete with it, right? So now it's changing. Like even the ones that have raised a lot of money, their valuations are coming down, nobody wants to give them more money, right? They are right-sizing their pricing because huh. they realize they have to make money. So it actually, actually have to operate easier. a business. Good times, good <laughs> yeah, times. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like hey, like there's actually businesses to make money at some point <laughs> you know. And look, there's businesses that like in software, there's definitely a world where, you know, you have to spend money to acquire a customer. Yeah. If you have enough of a lifetime value calculated, like you can lose money to acquire that customer and at some point you make money. But in logistics, it's like or in, you know, in fulfillment it's it's if you if your gross margin is negative you know, meaning like you, you know, I ship 100 packages for you and I lose money on every single package I ship. There's no way that I'm, that's ever going to scale, right? Yeah, like, yeah. And, and, and a lot of these companies, that's what they're doing, right? Like they're just burning through cash and like they think that with scale, they're going to figure it out and actually their cost is going to come down. But
0: it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cyclical thing I've seen in many categories where you start with um, don't show me profit, you better not, um, until it, the whole market turn into EBITDA driven. And no investor wants to touch you unless you're profitable. And from one day to another, it switches. Yeah. And, and the problem I've seen with companies, and I've, I had that when I had buyers coming to buy big private equities. And they said, it's kind of like a Kool-Aid that you give a company that was already operating under debt. They're used to operate under debt. Now you tell them, now you start, need, you got to make profit now they don't know how to ever turn profit. Well, it's a cultural thing. It's a cultural thing.
1: Because if you think about like, and and this is kind of the funny thing, right? That's like the market today, obviously, is everybody wants to see profit. Forever, you know, forever. The last, well, the last, whatever, couple of years has been like, oh, just want to see growth, growth. Like, we don't really care if you're making money. You actually shouldn't make money. You get, you know, you should burn as much as possible. There's a funny thing that one of my, um, one of the investors that I've spoken with Maybe five years ago, I asked this, this lady that works for private equity. I said, hey, what do you think is our biggest risk? We weren't growing nicely at this time. We're pretty early, like maybe 10 million in revenue. But we're making money. You know, we had like a million in EBITDA at that time. right? And I asked her, like, hey, what are, we, you know, what, what are we missing? Like, What's our risk? And she said, your biggest risk is to be profitable. Because then <laughs> people are going to value on EBITDA multiple and not on revenue multiple. You know, and I was like, how screwed up is that? Like, so you know, messed up. I mean, this is, this
0: is this is this is where, where I think it's interesting I, when when and I think you should tell the story when we're talking about that you were and she wasn't wrong, actually, probably, because when you're in January, you're all getting an offer. Yeah. And then that offer changed by the same buyer. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I don't know if you can...
2: Explain.
1: Yeah, I can't, I mean, I can't say the names, no, but yeah, yeah, that is right. Like this was, well, this was in 2020, right? So but, I've
2: never I've never really operated in a business where you're not trying to be profitable. So I've never really experienced this. But so explain to me why somebody who's VC, private equity, looking at a company that's not profitable, how, why do they value it at a multiple on revenue? Well, because there's... No, I know
0: there's no multiple on EBITDA, you can even... You, 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 you value by the space. If you don't have the measurement of profits, it, it happened with, uh, with Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos was convincing his people for 20 years that he should not be turning profit. He want to take over. The, he want to own the fulfillment so no one would be able to beat him. And they were furious. He was the most hated person in a boardroom every time he would come in, but he was, he was standing his ground until he turned profit. It took him 20 years now. That kind of like change a lot of perspective for companies. But that's also true. the only
2: metric that you can even... No,
0: make. it is not. But for companies in the... You see, it's different when you're, when you're not profitable on the SaaS because mm-hmm. you have 95% retention or whatever year over year. Well, gross margin is like... But you then have, you have, also like when you sell a particular yeah. product, when you sell a particular goods and you're actually pushing money out, the engine has to make sense. And it's like, don't worry about the engine. It will make sense once I open another 17 locations and yeah. the logistic is going to be cheaper and so on. So it's very hard. It worked for some and it modified the whole industry mindset for investors to say, don't show me your profit because that's going to be your, yeah. your judgment. Because what else?
1: Because I mean, if you think about it, right? If you're an investor, somebody's yeah. showing you a business and they're like, hey, this, you know, we're 10 million in revenue, losing money. Like whether they're losing a million or 25 million. How do you use any of that to value the you business? Can. You have to look at the yeah. revenue,
2: you have to look at revenue and you have to
1: look at growth and you have to look at, you know, the industry comparables, right? But like in our world, you know, it's, it's in software where you're losing, where, where your gross margin is 90% or 50% or 70, whatever, but you're losing money overall because you're Developing. investing in acquisition. Yeah. It's like you can make that argument somewhat that in the future when you have enough of a customer base, you're gonna turn
2: profit, yeah. right? I mean that's what Uber did. That's a what a lot of yeah, did. I mean
1: this well the the, the crazy thing is there's a lot of examples where this worked. But then but there's, there's, you don't hear about the ninety percent of the examples where that does. Well doesn't you do work, sometimes. Right? I mean that was majority bolt. don't work.
2: You know them. Bolt? Yeah, yeah. So they that didn't work for them. I think they were I think I think it's bolt. I don't know Bolt. Bolt is a payment processing mm. uh, software, basically, and they basically grew with ridiculous valuations, I don't think they were ever. No, you're p-
0: talking about fast. Fast, the one oh, fast, sorry, not Bolt. Yes. Bolt was a
2: competitor. Excuse me. Yes. So fast did this, yes. and then a billion dollar uh, valuation. Yeah, it was like billion dollar valuations. Uh, there was three hundred million dollars at a billion dollar valuation, went bankrupt like a month after they raised that round, yeah. something like that. But that was the issue, right? So they were still software, mm-hmm. and I think their I think their revenues were, were like I'm gonna get this number up, right. but it was in like, the hundreds of thousands per year. Yeah. That there was, was nothing it. special. Like, the
0: one click, okay, the, everyone their burn has rate the one click. Was yeah. <laughs> 10x the rabbit. Yeah, but that's like, well, but,
1: but that's the, and, and like that's, you know, because there's been so much money thrown into venture, like yeah. that's just, you know, forcing these investors to invest, which is artificially driving these valuations up, which is forcing the entrepreneurs to spend money, which they don't necessarily need, right? So it's accelerating the cycle, and there's definitely examples where it's worked great, right? So, you know, that, like Amazon was kind of the pioneer in that yeah. and it's worked well. But like, I think there's so many other businesses where, or verticals that you just can't do it, right? Or, you know, like some of our competitors, exactly in a gross negative margin environment, they're claiming like, oh, once we get big enough and we'll you know have all these customers, that's when we start making money. But
0: I think Chewy is a great example. If you look at Chewy, which is a dog uh, online pet store, Chewy was acquired for 3.5 billion by Ryan Cohen. And he sold this to, I forget the name of the private equity that owns, I think, Petco. Uh, and or, yep. or, or the other yeah, and then uh, they took it public, the to yeah. public it get to a point that there were 30 billion dollar valuation and then they fall off a cliff But what well, once it turned, be that driven because there are no it's still not profitable everything they've ever made They're losing money. The actual engine is not profitable when you ship uh, for the 70 pounds you, uh, co- you, have, you
2: have cogs you have like you have, you have everything. Yes.
0: Yeah, yeah, so I mean, but it's 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 like a musical chair think, that a lot of investors are playing, where they said, "Okay, there'll be 16 rounds or so. I'm gonna just yeah. jump from this round to another round. Yeah. I, can I go and I still But beat you know this what? Thing. I'm gonna
2: get out before anybody yes, steals exactly, this." Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so it's a musical chair. Definition
1: of a Ponzi scheme, but yeah, the way. It's technically like it is. Not a lot yeah. of underlying value. Which, I mean, it's it's you know, it's funny, but like that's what a lot of venture has been like the last couple of years, right? It's like, hey, I'm investing in A. I'm just hoping somebody's gonna invest at a higher valuation in C. And I think that's where we're gonna be up for a, you know pretty interesting realization right now in the next couple of months, where all these people need money, but nobody's gonna give them the same valuation they've given them six months ago. Nobody. So we're gonna see a lot of I mean you know there's just really funny memes now coming like around on you know around venture, which is just like. You know, people begging for money and VCs is just basically like, yeah, like, we're not giving you the money at the valuation. Yeah, and you show want.
0: them all the great business that this time it's actually working. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it's, you
1: know, it's a tough, tough time.
0: Um, what are some of the, the biggest fuck ups that you've made as you scaled? Oh. <laughs> Let's go through some of the things so that people don't
2: have to... There's so many. Them. There's,
0: there's <laughs> tell, them about, tell them about the one where you're on, on, some, uh, on Black Friday. <laughs> Tell yeah. them the Black Friday scenario.
1: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, this is logistics, so there's a lot of fuck-ups all the time. Like, you're working with people, and they always make mistakes. It's, it's, a, it's a really interesting industry. But the, the, what happened on Black Friday, this was maybe 2017, and we just moved into a new warehouse in Deerfield, uh, just like 30,000 square feet, and then we were operating, and Black Friday is obviously the biggest day of the year for us, right? Like, the sales go through the roof, and we hire a ton of people, and, like, we just get ready. And then I was actually in North Carolina somewhere, and I just get a call the day before Thanksgiving, um, which, you know, obviously that's the day before Black Friday. And they're like, hey, like, we've got, you know, we've had a little bit of an issue with um, with power, and we lost power, and, you know, we think it was going to be up, like, in two hours. Two hours that I get call and they're like, oh, the electrician came, and the transformer burned out. Um, and there's no way we can replace the transformer until the morning. Uh, I'm sorry, until Monday morning, which was, this was Wednesday before Thanksgiving, right? And so, like, the, like... None of the stores are open until Monday, so you're going to be not operating for five days. Now, in any other business, that probably would have been okay. For us, though, like, we literally, if we weren't operating for those five days, like, we would be out of business. There's no question. Because you get so behind that, like, you just can't hire enough people to to get out of it. So I flew back. You know, we looked at the situation. We're like, man, like, we're screwed. Like, what are we going to do? we ended up doing is we ended up, like, basically cutting through a a hole in the warehouse to our neighbor's place. And we tapped into their, uh, we tapped into their like panel, like electrical panel, and basically ran extension cords. All we, I sent my, like 20 people that I had, like all to different like Walmarts and Home Depots and like bought all the extension cords they have. So we bought, I'm not joking, like 10,000 feet of extension cords, brought it all back, ran it from that one freaking panel in the other warehouse and just connected every single peripheral into our house, like pack stations, scanners, Wi-Fi, internet, everything, right? Because the, the the thing just burned down and we couldn't get any replacement. So we're like, oh, well, without power, we can operate. So we, you know, it took us, I don't know, a whole day to kind of do that. And like it looked like Honduras in there, like you had just wires everywhere, right? Like it was just like in the streets of just, you know. <laughs> I mean, it was it was crazy, but it was great to kind of see the team come together and like really solve this problem that seemed unsolvable at the time and it really saved the business, right? Like it was, you know, we were, I mean, it, we had a one-day delay, but made in and and you know and it was, nobody it was could to rally together. No Nobody tell, could yeah. tell, but yeah. it, it could have been pretty detrimental, you know.
2: I, I think that you know like doing stuff like that is what defines like great entrepreneurship, right? Because a lot of yeah. people when when they when they hit a wall like that, they don't think of. I, I mean, even when you were closing customers at CES, like there's like attitudes that make a good entrepreneur. Because you look at where you came from, where you're at now, and everyone can be like, oh, you know, you, you rode the wave of ecom and. Dude, there's a lot of ways you could fuck this up along the way. Oh yeah, like yeah a yeah, thousand yeah. different yeah. ways.
1: Yeah. You know, it's another funny one. Like this is, um, maybe not as fun. Well, it's pretty funny, but it's 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 not as like uh, that was a fuck up. Like we, so obviously the biggest issue in our uh, in our business is like you miss, you know, you, you ship somebody else's inventory to the wrong customer, oh. right? Oh. And so like you have 100 customers in your building, they all carry totally different products, right? And so we would have, you know, we would have products that would be like. Like pet toys we would have products that are like t-shirts and we have like baby you know clothing or whatever and we would have a customer uh that's that's a it's called cat lady box it's actually a local company great business right they they sell products to like cat ladies and somehow and actually like i almost still think it was like intentional because this lady right like we ship her she ordered a uh like a cat lady box with all these products and we accidentally ship her a t-shirt um from like an influencer which was like this this like young kid that like is like a YouTube influencer, and it said Pussy Slayer on it. Oh my god. <laughs> and we're just like, holy shit. And we saw the picture, you know, we they, they, she's and she took it so well. She oh was like, god. you know, like, I love my cats, like this is not funny. And it just like and it, it was literally like like Pussy oh Slayer my god. on this shirt, right? And this this I just imagined this huge lady somewhere in like middle of Idaho, you know, opening this, excited for this cat lady box. She opens this and says, pussy slayer <laughs> That's on crazy. it. And like, it was the most funny, hilarious mistake we made. And they were very like brave about like taking that. But we did have, you know, scenarios where he accidentally shipped like a, a, a strap-on to, yeah. um, you know, a kid oh that God. ordered like something else. Like, unfortunately, and we've, you know, we've obviously processes around it to now not happen again. <laughs> But you have some of these like most random things that happen that are just You know about about funny.
0: those those um, mistakes or things. when we had our customer service, we had stories and we thought, oh, we get some stories with customer service. Uh, so we brought our CTO that had a dating site. And when we thought we know we have some stories, he told us his stories on his dating sites on oh, sure ridiculous stories on his dating site. I was site. like, listen, man, this website of yours, what's up with that? I'm taking this girl on a date and I'm buying her dinner. I'm dropping her off but she doesn't let me go to her house or she doesn't want to come to my house you need to call her and tell her to come to my house <laughs> are you serious <laughs> yes what? Like, what it's a good customer service
1: because yes. this guy probably wants you to show up yes. Yeah, that's funny yeah
0: it's uh, it's fine we had um one time when this lady sent us an email and she said um that was early on. And when we didn't know what to do, I had I had always uh, a solution. So she said, listen, I've been subscribed for 12 months, getting your boxes. Now, I never really use them. I keep them. My house it was burnt. So what are you going to do? Give me the money back for all my boxes. <laughs> so it was all fresh for us. And I said, you know, usually you should tell her, look, I'm sorry, but call your insurance. But... Um, Call Ipsy, tell them the same story, see what they're going to say. That was early on. <laughs> so then Ipsy came up with their response and then said, it's exactly what we said, just call your insurance. And we would pass it on. Every time when we had this, we, re- we also had the girl that uh, was saying, listen, um, you guys withdrew my money, but I didn't have enough money in the bank. So now I ended up with this guy. I got knocked out. Now I'm pregnant. So you guys have to take care of the baby now. <laughs> Yeah, we had all kind of crazy stuff. How, how did crazy not having story. money in the bank have to do with... It's, it's... They're trying. They try.
1: Oh, but you know what? Like, I get, I get, <laughs> I get messages. You'd be surprised. I get, I mean, I would say probably a couple of week now in check. Yeah. Um, you know, because, like, like, people have seen, obviously, the news articles and everything. And, like, they'll, they'll just email me random on, on, on Instagram and be like, hey, like, you know, I have a baby and, like, I, I'm a gambler and, like, I really need to borrow $50,000 to, like, build a new house. And I'm like, okay, cool like great like we'd love to help you but i don't think this is the way to like do it and and you know it's not like
2: yeah anyway it's just not customer service it's just people hitting you up for money yeah no no but random people right like that happens to me too but (laughs) it's just weird it's very strange but i mean that's probably a whole bunch of scammers too right oh for sure yeah yeah Yeah. no i'm sure Um. it's true <laughs> yeah, I,
1: need, I need to connect you with this uh, FX yeah, I, trader I, I, guy. Like he's been punches. promising me that he can yeah. make me billions of dollars. Yeah, I like, have a great do, binary options
2: do. for you. Yeah, binary <laughs> yeah. options trading opportunities. They're based out of Kenya, though. Yeah. So I don't know if that's gonna work for you. I'm sure uh, it's gonna work. I have a question. Um, it's interesting because you both just mentioned like these like customer success, customer service stories. How involved should a CEO be in customer service?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's very different in a B2C versus B2B environment. In a B2C environment where you've got thousands of customers, like you have to, you know, you can't like I mean, I think you might be able to take calls, but it's very hard to stay unbiased. You have how many?
2: You have twenty five hundred employees. Twenty five
1: hundred employees, yeah. Yeah.
2: So I mean, you you can be obviously removed, but some people still try and I think what's important yeah. the loudest complaints.
1: I think what's, well, in a B2C world, right, like, not our business, but, like, when you have tens of or hundreds of thousands of customers, like, I don't think there's a way, I mean, you can take a call for fun, like, every once in a while, but I think in order for you to truly make a difference, like, you need to just measure the right metrics and then ultimately help improve the business according, like, what people are complaining about. In our business, we try to do the same thing, but our business, there's a lot more weight on the bigger customers, so, like, I'll, you know, have a personal relationship with a lot of the bigger clients that I'll know personally, and then... You know, I'll try to spend time with them to try to really understand, um, not necessarily like individual problems, but more what are, what are macro things that are where we can be better, we can help them better, we can create a better solution, right? Like what are the things that they're seeing in the industry or what are the things that are bothering them that we may be able to come up with a solution for, right? So I, I, don't, I wouldn't necessarily call it a customer service where yeah. like, I'm like, hey, this package like didn't ship, like I don't really do that. Um, although I used to a lot to kind of try to understand what you know, how the product is actually performing. But now it's more, what are the patterns? And then how do we make a better product based on the feedback? But I do think-
2: How do, how do you do that though? How do you keep a you on the pulse?
1: Yeah, yeah, so it's like the right data, right? So, you know, categorizing tickets and complaints and like really understanding like what are the different segments that people, um, like the way that I, I'll give you a specific example, right? So when people complain, we mark a ticket, like we kind of measure the the- mood of that ticket, right? Like, is it a question? Is it a, you know, is it a bug? Is it like, hey, this customer is really pissed because we screwed something up. Like, if that's the case, we kind of classify it that way. And then we choose additional category, like what happened? Is it something we did or is it something misunderstanding, whatever? And then I'll have a reporting to understand, okay, like 10% of our tickets are all, you know, people that are mad. And then this is the breakdown of like exactly what they're mad about. And then I'll typically productize it to say, how do we make these better, right? If it's the wrong product shipped to the wrong person, you know, operations going to own it. It's typically going to be tied to a silver metric around accuracy and I'm going to hold them accountable to improve that metric. Do you have it
0: part of your meetings? Like, uh, I don't know, stand-up meetings or something like that? Yeah,
1: so we'll do, um, so I have like executive one-on-ones with everybody once a week and then we'll have like one executive meeting with everybody. These are more typically like, we'll we'll do this not, you know, we'll do this once a quarter where we do our OKR Mm -hmm. meeting. So we'll figure out like, what are the things that we can improve our customer experience and how do we, you know, how do we just make people happier overall? And, and that is driving some of these initiatives. You know, it could be like we need to hire more people to have a, a quicker response time, right? We need to really focus on accuracy so that we don't have these pussy slayer shirts shipping to people, right? And like I love cats. <laughs> it could be, it could be any, of this, yeah. any of these things. And there's always – it's a little bit of a guacamole because like there's a million things that are always happening. So you got to prioritize. And it's frustrating because you want to fix them all. But it's just not possible, right? Like you got to just pick the ones that you really want to focus on, get the team behind it, put an owner, and and then just run with it.
2: And how do you how do you stack rank like the highest leverable uh, like highest opportunities or highest leverageable opportunities when you look at all these different problems?
1: We try to quantify it based on impact. So like typically it's going to be dollar amount of of like the people that have issues with it. Like what is the impact if they were to leave Shipmunk, right? So. If I have one small customer, like, complain about something that nobody else has ever complained about, it's obviously going to be ranked a lot different than if I have three of my biggest customers complaining about one of the specific things. So we try to always put a value, quantifiable value towards um, how many dollars are at stake to figure out what we're prioritizing.
0: What was when, when uh, Scott asked you about a mistake, right? Now, let's talk a little bit about more like a strategic big time mistake or something or a missed opportunity that you have that you said. I should have doubled down on something. If it was anything like that that you should have said. Well,
1: yeah, it's you know I, I think about this a lot because I, I always, I mean, my mindset in general tries to be. I don't want to regret things because like I want to. I feel like we are where we are because of the decisions we made, and like could have been in a better place, like maybe. But I am also pretty happy where we are. So I feel like any but decision... But still, as,
0: as a learning, as a learning. That was like
1: part. wrong. I think it w- have obviously pushed us right. But I think it's. Uh, I think it's more about um hiring the right people sooner yeah, yeah. which is kind of the common thing of i think everybody says that yeah. but it's you know like we hired our first cfo when we were i think 70 million dollars of, of revenue right mm-hmm. which is and i was doing a lot of the quickbooks before that and so getting the visibility getting the quality of data and getting like really the understanding of the business from a financial perspective sooner definitely would have been pretty impactful you know i think um maybe like COO has been a role that I've been just trying to hire forever and it's taken me four people to hire the right person. Now I have finally the right person. And that's for me. So if personally, they listen,
0: all the other ones, they know they were not the right ones. They,
1: yeah, that's I mean, I think they already know anyway. <laughs> but, um, but that's been the hardest role for yeah. me to hire for. And it's taken three years. And, you know, I, I wish I mean, I don't think I don't know what I would have done differently, but I wish I would have hired that person. It's soon. a matter of luck, right? And that's it's, it's a matter of well, it's also the size of the company because like I could have never attracted the guy that I have today. Two years before that, right? Okay, like, sure. you would have never been interested. And I think that's always a, it's always a timing thing, you know? So, um, strategically, I think, like, honestly, like, I think we're, like, I'm pretty happy where we are, so I don't think there would have been, like, major dramatic changes that I would have done
2: But you, like, you, okay, so now, um, like, if you look at where your revenue numbers are at now... Uh, and I don't know if it's public or not is it our revenues more or less public so you said yeah yeah like
1: over oh yeah like 350 okay so if you
2: look at 350 million dollars that's significant I mean if you're talking about CFO at 70 COO figuring that out right now um it's taken you a while to bring on the right people but a point you made before was very interesting how you have this like incredible lifestyle while you're still running this business even though you're still doing in theory all these tasks right so how did you build this business so that you can still maintain this lifestyle
1: yeah that's a great question um so I think, I mean, I, I love to enjoy life. So like everything I do is is always, um, I just want to have a great time. And, and so I try to design my life so that it's not in a way of, like I, I wouldn't see myself. And I did this for the first three years, right? Like I didn't do anything. Like I just worked my ass off the first three years. What I realized quick enough is that the more I let go, the more I can enjoy life, the more I can travel, the more I can do different things. I've never been able to, not until recently, like I've been able to completely disconnect where I would go on a trip and I wouldn't work. But what I realized is that like a lot of the, and this is the big, I think this is the most difficult job for any founder to kind of transition from that founder to CEO. And we used to talk about this all the time with Joe, where like, there's Can you explain that point too? Like, what does that mean, founder to CEO? So, so like a founder wants to be in every decision, right? They want to control everything. They want to like, they're very associated. Like it's the business in them is one thing where a CEO tries to disassociate themselves with the business has a little bit more of an objective view, delegates more, and really empowers people to make decisions. And a founder is not scalable, right? Like you can't scale that mindset over a certain size of a company, depending on the industry, where a CEO, like they understand the value that they can't fix everything, right? And they have to empower the people to fix their own things and hold them accountable to fixing them. And that's been really difficult for me. I mean, it's taken me really two years in in, in a lot of departments to kind of let go and and empower these people to make these decisions, understanding sometimes they're gonna make the wrong choice, right? But sometimes that's okay. If I feel like it's too big of a mistake, then well, I'll get more involved, dive in, like try to ultimately make sure that it's not a detrimental decision to the company. But by doing that, and, and I've done it in most departments, you know, kind of, it's like a progression. You have a best person for HR, you're able to step away in HR, right? Like you have an amazing sales guy, you can step away from sales. Operations for me has been like one of the latest ones that i you know been finding able to step away. So that's been taking the majority of my time. But um, I've been always able to work or do enough to like when I was remote or traveling, like I've been able, I still been, you know, I was working. And um, and while I was having an amazing time and it would recharge me to come back and like get to work and just, you know, put a lot of hours um kind of back into you know really back into the ground like,
2: like when you take that time off it allows you to operate at a higher capacity than it else. allows me
1: to disconnect from the day to day and it gives me a different perspective because if you're in the office every day right for whatever a year straight like you get so inundated by everybody's asking you questions you're always like in the weeds you're trying to solve problems that are just like fires. So right? it's just like firefighting everything yeah. is a fire you're trying to just kill these fires but if you get away and you don't have these meetings, right? And like you have to, like you actually have really a time to think about it. You get to get a different perspective on the business. Yeah,
0: I found I found that it, on a day to day, if I would step outside of my office and do stuff, some restaurant, I would be doing all the stuff that I don't do that are higher level than fi- uh, turning off fires because people would walk into your office. It's not open all the all time. time. Everyone, yeah, so, everyone wants so you your validation. Can, you can, you, yeah, because your your mindset is important and urgent and every time like, you know, it, it takes a second. Let me do it. It might not be even urgent or important. And you cut, get yourself caught up with little, little stuff. So unless you're in a meeting or something like that, people would come in. So I, I, I found it absolutely true that you get out, even don't have to take a trip doing snowboarding or something, but you just walk out of the office. You do it in a restaurant, you spend a couple hours, all the emails you needed to do all the new opportunities for tomorrow there. And then you go back and you make sure, you know, what else helped me a lot, um, to kind of like shy away from this, that little interruptions of the day. Simple. Just try the list of what you got to do. Write a list. And it took me a while to actually say, okay, I, I'm not as productive. I'm getting to the same point. Just write a list. I'm, I'm busy now. Let me finish this. Is it that important right now? Do I have to do it today? Okay, no. Okay. All Once I tackle all those, I'm free to do everything else. Yeah. It was it was helpful. I mean, I
1: think structure and overall, like... like I'm a pretty organized person, right? Really. Like, try to, you know, I'm big in working and, and, and like I use Asana for everyday life. I use Slack, obviously the community of the company, but like everything I do my day when I plan it, I'm, you know, I have tasks that are like urgent that I need to do that are kind of more tactical. But I also literally create projects that are more strategic, that are more brainstorming where I like pull in people and I love to balance both. Right. So like I, I really love getting into product meetings and talking about like, hey, this is our problem. I bring in stakeholders from different parts of the company we brainstorm we come up with a solution and then from that right i'll go into a meeting like a, strate- a strategic meeting and we say where do we want to be in five years as a company from a margin growth you know revenue customer profile and like balancing those two is super important sometimes like because you're into the day-to-day and like if especially if you're killing fires all the time like it almost seems like the world is ending mm-hmm. right because like everything you're doing is problem solving and even though you love problem solving which i do it just seems it just makes your brain so focused on these um, you know little issues that it's very difficult to kind of zoom out. Yeah. Where if you leave, people that have these little issues they're not going to go to you. They know you're gone, right? And so like you have to finally kind of like look from above and and,
0: and look at. Did that you get to again. a point that they already know not to bug you with little things? And there are other people, and unless yeah, it's I urgent, mean, I, I w- they come to you, yeah. Because that's where the the health of the company starts falling into place where, I mean, you said you you found a CEO and I can, I mean, we spoke about this before, Eric, you know, Eric, yeah. it was in, instrumental, right? I got lucky, I got him early on when I was in 50, at 50 million, but it was pretty much taking off a lot of that noise and, and it was also helpful because sometimes you need someone to tell you, I don't think you should be messing with this, there are bigger things to do, let... Julie take care of it. Did Eric did Eric say that to you? Oh yeah, all the time. Because the yeah, thing is with Eric, he was going with he was working in Chewy with Ryan Cohen. He was seeing the transformation and he said, Look, we've seen this. We've seen the, the good, bad and the ugly where we founders or founders. There's that, that that CEO disease, the founder CEO disease, which is kind of like can let go, you have your favorites, all that. And and it's good to hear it, right? You you hear it one time, it's like, ah, you no, know, but
1: that's the, yeah. I think that's the most difficult thing. And, and it just really depends on the personality of the CEO, but it's like, it becomes, you know, there's this thing that like, it's really lonely at the top. Right. And I think that's so true because most people are never going to give you honest feedback as a CEO. Mm-hmm. And I actually still, to this day, haven't really found a good way to get honest feedback because I, I try to ask for it all the time. But like, if I work for you, like, it's difficult for me to tell you like, mm-hmm. Hey, you suck at this. You shouldn't do this. like. Unless we have a really strong relationship and we work together for a long time. So I have few people in the company that will try to tell me because it's, it's actually the opposite. Everybody's trying to kiss your ass all the time, right? They're like, they, they never want to tell you the bad news. They want to make themselves look in the best light, you know, it, it's, it's so it's difficult to really see yourself for who you are, which I think is one of the most difficult things as a CEO is to actually get honest feedback about yourself and figure out how you
0: can be better. What about you, your partners, your, your investors? They, I mean they, they, they high they, level. Yeah, they but they get...
1: they don't know how I operate, right? Like they you know, we, we I see them at board meetings and they have pretty good input strategically, but like they wouldn't be the ones telling me like, hey, this is not the stuff you should be involved with, or mm. this is not how you should have communicated this. It's not, you yeah. know, you should have yelled at this guy, like whatever that is, right? Like it's so I think I try to be more reflective to really become and I have a CEO coach who kinda of helps me with this, but you know, it's like it would be super helpful to have somebody on the team that's like and I, I used my uh, head of HR, um, which actually used to be head of HR for truly too for a long time to kind of coach me on these situations where it's like, Hey, like, don't get upset. Like think about it, step, take a step back. And then let's have that conversation next week. And that's important because you're always passionate as a founder. Right. And so like you want to, have this instinct of solving problems and everything is a nail, you know, when you have But do have you it.
0: feel sometimes it's time to say no? Because, I, I mean, you said, look, I know what to strip down. Okay, now I don't need to do a jar, do someone good. I don't have to do customer service. But operation, I, I still couldn't find another me or better to go and take over. So I'm going to stay there. right? And then you find yourself going to the granular details and they tell you, I don't deal with the minutiae. If someone comes to you, tell you that, like, well. If I don't deal with this type of minutia, that minutia is actually important. Yeah. So uh, if you kind of like make those, do you still find yourself in yeah, those? Positions? Yeah, for
1: sure. Because I think what, and this is, I think where a lot of f- leaders fail. Where you know, I've seen this in our business, where some leaders are just going to want to be high level, like I'm um, the head of yeah. sales. Like I don't need to understand how our like sales guys take a call and like what's our value prop or whatever, right? Like I,
2: I have massive issue with that. Yeah, yes. <laughs> no, no,
1: no. It's a it's a it's a biggest issue, yes, and yeah, and I've yeah. hired the wrong people um, yeah. sometimes, right? Because They'll think like, oh, they're this entitled like VP person or like whatever. And it's below them to like get down in the weeds and do this stuff, right? And there's so many people like that. And I have a huge issue because in my mind, like if you are overseeing a certain department, you should know and be able to replace any single person on your team, right? Because you can't answer a basic ticket as a VP of customer success. Then like, how can you coach people or like keep them accountable to answering these types of tickets, right? Like it doesn't really make a lot of sense. And so... I think that balance between being able to do a deep dive when you need to, versus staying high level and delegating to your leaders, is extremely important. And you can't do, you know, you can't just be in the weeds all the time because then, like, you're not really useful. But you have to keep that balance because that's the only way to really like scale a business.
0: You know, let me let me say something. When you when you grow a company, and this is where I want you to tell me how you guys do it. I guess the challenge is, uh, once you start tiering the organization from being very flat, it was just you, Johnny, and, and, and managing a bunch of people now, there's just, just you, then there's C-levels, and VPs or SVP. So, uh, how many, by the way, how many tiers do you have in your in your organization? So it
1: depends on the department, like, you know, mostly, I mean, we have VPs, directors. Um, is it, f- from, from the lowest
0: to the CEO, how many levels? Yeah, I mean, it, Four, or five, six? It, like, on average, I would say five. Like okay, operations, so five.
1: operations is like nine. For example.
0: Okay, but within them, they have okay, so they have more. Okay, so yeah. then, do you find yourself being more structured with meetings, where some people spend more time in meetings than actually working, or you're able to dodge that and and still keep yourself uh, more like back I mean, into like two big
2: meetings. company problems? Yes. now. I guess at twenty five hundred.
1: It's a yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think we're definitely. Yes, I think we do. I think we're slowing down in a lot of the decision-making ability that we used to have, like agility. I think any, like, innovation is tied to agility, and I think agility is so important in success of any business. The mm-hmm. whole reason why companies, big companies, get outcompeted competed by small guys with no money is because they just, you know, they're, like, they're able to innovate, pivot on the spot. And I, one of those... I, I, I,
0: I asked a question, by the way. I'm sorry I cut you off. Because when you said quarterly re- uh, review meetings that I have, it's like, that was the when, once you hear that it's kind of like a, a formula. Okay, there's the annual, there's semi, there's quarterly, there's just all those meetings that that kind of like give me stomach ache when I hear.
1: It's like you know, it's funny because like, and I think there's a balance, right? Because like, I hate the whole concept of oh, we are going to be a corporation, things are going to be slow, we're going to be all these like bullshit meetings that everybody has. But at some point though, like you realize there's no other way to run a company because if you get a certain size you have to be able to have some sort of structure otherwise like the company is going kind to of fall apart so like even if you're a ceo that like doesn't want a structure and i the, you know i hate having weekly meetings but but if i don't i'm never going to actually like,
0: absolutely you need you need to connect everybody you need bridges you need to make sure that everybody is on the same page but the the challenge i've, I've seen with meetings is because i've seen both sides in baksicham we were small amount of corporate people then we had lots of uh, i mean our fulfillment wasn't done by us so that cuts off hundreds of employees and if you took you know uh, if you look at customer service yeah, we had people in customer service but most of them were outsourced or hundreds of them all. but the idea was always like about 150 employees right running a 500 million dollar business and then when we were acquired by ipsy similar story right but they had about 500 employees but still similar story almost the same revenue they're about 20 percent more and it was all night and day. And when they said, okay, you're gonna manage BoxyCharm after two weeks, I said, okay, I'm not doing that, that's it. I'm not stealing meetings all day. From every day, all day, and it was just all my team had to be in meetings all day, none of them did the job. So obviously it's needed once you have more people, right? They had 16 layers from the bottom all the way to the CEO, we had four or five yeah. or something like that. Yeah. But the, the, the question is, when are you start seeing that you're overly doing that so you stop yourself from it how do you know yeah, it's, that I mean, you it's feel it's honestly
1: like, something we're dealing with right now right because how do you know whether you have too many layers or not too or, many
0: layers like too many meetings or too maybe, unnecessary maybe, or no, too many but people in meetings maybe too many
2: layers leads to too many meetings exactly. because you have to
1: that is well, that it's, is it's, yeah and so like a great example in yeah. our customer support team right like we uh, you know we 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 kind of merged when we acquired uh, one of these companies that we bought we merged the support team so we have about 150 people on our support team and it's a mix of customer support account management fairly complex stuff right but you've got 150 people and originally you know we would have like one person that would basically like or a team of like four people then we would have an account manager and then maybe they would report to a vp so like three layers right and then we kind of did a reorg early in the year Somehow, I don't even know how this happened, but we like basically created like six or seven layers. Mm. And then what we realized, it wasn't necessarily the meetings in this particular case. It was the time it took to make a decision because if Joe true. here yeah. didn't know what to do, he went to his lead yeah. here, right? Like that guy didn't feel empowered. So he went to his like manager. That manager didn't really know what to do. So went to the, direct, mm. the, the, the junior director and then a the senior director. And then by the time this all happened, a week went by and the wow. customer like was like where is my answer right and like yeah. there's a balance between empowering people and like getting too many approvals and you need to have structure in place where you know you want to you want to balance between empowering people and so like when you have controls. a
0: situation like this okay when you said okay a box is not being shipped all right sometimes the proper way to to structure a meeting makes more sense because it's a similar situation where i so saw after we were acquired where there are so many meetings so many people but people didn't get their boxes on time. Complaints, months and months goes by. And then the most important part was every day, every week should be a meeting where everyone is synced. Are there any delays? Who's going to be delayed? Why are they going to be delayed? Can we in advance, preemptively go and contact them, right? It wasn't passed on to the next business. So ideally is that it's not about, I guess the challenge is like, not about how many meetings is the substance of the meetings? And when you, I, I always looked at this as from m- the morning until say two p.m. You gotta make sure that those people work the actual work and do yeah. tactical stuff. Everything else after pushing the meetings because the, you're the most productive before you have your lunch time. Yeah, so you're more creative, more passionate. Meetings is just draining.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it depends on the, the role, right? Like, there's you got individual contributors who should spend most of their time working. I think the higher up you get, the more meetings you're spending time in. But, like, if you're a VP of support, right? Like, most of your day is not going to be actually working, it's going to be managing your team. And so, if you're managing your team, you have to be meeting with the individual team members, maybe you meet with customers, but there's not a lot of, like, busy work that people do in those roles. And so, I think there's a balance between the, my mindset has always been creating a structure so that you don't have repetitive meetings about things that can be solved separately outside of the meeting, right? In my mind, a meeting is used for, I need people's input, or I need to brainstorm about a problem we have. How do we come up with a solution? And then let's take it away and actually work on this, right? And maybe we meet in a week to brainstorm again, where I think this breaks down as like, hey, like we need to review the boxes that didn't ship, and then you bring 10 people in every single time. Like That doesn't make sense to me because... It's like, that's the same problem that happens every single week. Like you don't need 10 people for that, right? Like let's have a report. Let's have one person own it and then let them figure out like what they're doing instead of trying to pull in people from like 20 different places. Right. So I think there's a difference between like repetitive meetings that I don't really, I'm not a big fan of where are trying to like solve a repeatable problem versus we need to come up with a solution to a problem like this that will then prevent us from having those meetings in the future,
0: if that makes sense. On a side note, you know, Czech Republic this is the country that consume more beer per capita than any is other country true? in the world That's why I'm the tequilas. <laughs> yeah, yeah
1: exactly i'm being the uh, anomaly of czech yeah. people
2: um when you have all these layers i'm curious as to how you came to all these layers and when i think about why you would add on layers is because you want to incentivize people to join your organization you want to show them room for growth or whatever and then you want you basically want to help them grow in their career but then you have like the seven layers that you didn't even so it's, a, yeah, so it's a yeah. So
1: it's it's a great that's a great point because I've never thought about it that way, right? Like I've never thought about I want to create layers so that people have career growth, right? Like, and 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 this is my like weakness where I don't really think that way for people where I'm like, oh, I want to hire people so that but, they but the have thing every- is you,
2: for, I think, I don't think you should actually. I don't think you should do that. Yeah, I, I, should well, treat- I, I do think there's an element to it, right? But and you I'm should learning, find other ways for Yeah,
1: it. and I'm learning like, especially from a COO who's worked in a company with 25,000 people where like, you need to do that. Otherwise you start having big retention problems. So yeah. there's definitely a world where that makes sense. But I've always thought about it more like, okay, like is this person way too overwhelmed with what they're doing? And if they are, that means most likely they're managing way too many people. Or they don't have good people that are under them. So we need to put mm-hmm. a layer in between yeah. to really help them, like, bridge it, right? Yeah. So, like, it's never, for me at least, it's never been like, oh, we need, you know, this person's, like, ability to grow. Like, I think, the ch- like, with us, we because we've grown so quickly,
0: there's always opportunities so I'm for sorry, So So let me just way. articulate this. So you're saying, in the way you've seen the growth was, okay, a, one manager cannot manage more than six people. Now we have already... 12, okay, we need another manager, but someone has to manage. Once you have three managers, someone has exactly. to manage them. Now, right, 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 right. As, as natural growth of people, now you're going to go and have another layer, which is a director. Otherwise, you're going to have a manager managing two people, but because you, you need yep, to have yep. a bunch of layers and it makes no sense. I guess. Exactly, right. Yes.
1: And sometimes what we find ourselves in is like we have one person managing one person and then they manage a team of three people, right? And I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, why?
2: But that's, that's, that's a promotion for career progression exactly. and not. Yeah, outs, yeah, it's a bullshit promotion. Yeah, it's yeah, a, totally. People a wanted
0: year. a title to put on the resume yeah, yeah, well, for mean, the right reasons. The problem if with
2: millennial a, generation, right? Like everybody wants to be a junior a director, value, you know, value yeah. in the company. Right. So you're junior director managing the same reports, direct reports as a senior director.
0: I mean. No, to the director, which reports to the senior director. Yeah, There's exactly. already extra layers. Yeah, I mean, junior, no junior, and then a senior. This so. is
1: the thing where like, I just get so tired of these corporate bullshit. It is. Like, so like, much like tiring. Politics, right? Yeah. So like politics, I've never heard that word in our company ever until
0: Until year you started right? doing it. Where,
1: yes. you know, now it's like, man, like we can't do this because there's this, I'm like, how, you know, like we're here to run a business. Like we don't, and I'm not the most empathetic whole leader I would say like I you know I try to get shit done and sometimes hey guys
0: I, I'm about to go on a ski vacation please finish <laughs> it up all right was- <laughs>
1: no but like I you know like as a my mind says like hey let's get this thing resolved yeah and and I kind of sometimes like don't really worry about people's feelings as much which Maybe, especially in the U.S., it's a lot of a problem. you are going to get canceled on this podcast. No, no, no I'm you, but you know what? You.
2: If you, if you, if you're aware enough of yourself and how you lead, then you find somebody that is better at managing people. Yeah, ex- That's fine yeah, exactly. And
1: it's and it's you know like it's and, and I'm well aware of that. That's totally my weakness. Right, like something can be pretty tough, and it's not the best for the organization, for culture, and all that stuff. But it gets shit done, right? The opposite of that, which is the things that I also hate, it's like you know you, you suck at your job. And I don't want to tell you that, so I'll pat you on the back and say, hey, you're amazing, but, like, this thing, like, you know, can you please do it better next time, right? And that doesn't change anything either. So, like, I think there's a balance between being, you know, walking around and patting people I on the back it's and telling how great thing. they're doing. I don't think it's
0: Jan. I think you're doing the right thing because once you actually give a compliment, people cherish It matters, you. yeah. It yeah. matters, right? Yeah, but, I, it's, yeah. Not a cheap, it's not a cheap compliment because well, you a, do a, it all it's the a, time.
1: It's an Eastern European thing, right? Like, we're not used to, even as kids, like, our parents don't praise us for doing normal things, right? <laughs> yeah. And you get in this like award culture that is typically in the U.S. where like every kid wants an award even if they'll last. Yeah. So it's like everybody wants an award or they want, you know, to say how great of a job they're doing even if they suck. And so like the the school of thought I come from, and this is more uh, where I grew up, is like you get a good job or thank you if you really do a great job. If you just do your job, I don't tell you anything. If you suck, I'll tell you suck. And it's not like again, I, I've been learning to change that a little bit. So I'm more, you know, even people that kind of do their job, like I'll tell them they're doing a great job. And it's not the most it doesn't make me like it doesn't come naturally to me. And it but it does produce results. It doesn't always create so the re- best. Reinforce,
2: reinforce the status quo does produce results for you.
1: I think if you have strong leaders, it does. If you have people that need that, right? Like it's all about recognizing people's um like, like egos, because yeah. like, there's people that are very sensitive and they want praise all the time. And then, but,
0: but, I mean, John, listen, I've been to your headquarters and I can leave there. You have these huge screens. When you walk into his headquarters here in Deerfield, where was it? For Lauderdale. For yeah. Lauderdale. It's, you, you walk into, I think, 250,000 square feet, but he probably took about 20 or 30,000 square feet just for office space, where he made it a loft. And in between, in that section, he, he has a stage. And there is you know those TVs that are all connected? I'm talking something like yeah, eighteen yeah. feet. Like what you see at a feet? sports bar or something. Yeah, Huge. Yeah. yeah. No, it's one big screen. Yeah, it's and cool. then it has a whole arcade area and and cables and any throw parties over there. Oh, so you're you not wanna nasal. work there. So you're talking about okay, <laughs> so no, listen no, that's you you're not sp- doing a great job. Yeah, you're yeah. A streak, I'm a super but, nice guy, right? Like <laughs> overall.
1: But I do expect a lot from people, right? Yeah. And I think that's where the balance is and, and you know, and that's why like I need people, especially my executive team, like my executive team knows that I can be tough, but they also know I'm fair, right? Like I'm not tough because I, you know, because I like, if I tell you to do something and then it doesn't happen, then I can be tough. But I also appreciate when you do something right. And I, that's why honestly, like having that layer of really strong executives under me has been super beneficial to everybody, right? Because sometimes like I get emotional and I get, you know, I, I, I want to get you done. And sometimes people's emotions get so into they the they, they they buffer me. Yeah. yeah and it's been really good because you know like it's it it doesn't my type of leadership doesn't work for everybody and it's and it's sometimes Especially for a broader population, it's not always positive, right? Joe gets like that too. Like he can get pretty riley down I don't about. believe
0: I don't believe in cheap popularity. Huh? I believe I believe in being who you are and I'm not trying to go I I'm I'm a pretty awesome person, I think. I'm a fun <laughs> guy. Ask my, my ex wife, I'm sure she's gonna say that, but but I definitely agree that, that you don't get things done just because you give flowers to everybody. You have to go and explain to them, look, that was the mistake, you go with substance, explain why. But you, you also have say- to
2: know how to manage people based on their personality. For sure. It could be high absolutely but you have to know. Yes. Yeah,
0: Yeah, because this is not zeros and ones, right? You're not managing computer. You are going to have emotions. People are not always going to be the way you want them to speak. It is what it is. And it's fine. As long as they come with substance. I think the the point I'm taking from what you're saying is the yes people is something that I couldn't stand. People tell you you're right about everything and I need your fucking feedback. Don't go and tell me I'm right about everything. I want you to tell me why I'm wrong. And what I used to say is, look, if you said I'm right, and I do it, and I fail. I'll come back, and I say, "Okay, you're no longer giving me leverage. Just yeah. remember that. I'll go to someone else. You know, do- I want you to tell me." And I, the ones that I kept with me across along throughout the journey were the ones that would debate me all the time. It was it was it was easy for well, me also, to pick them. It's
1: also super important to be able to like be self-aware enough where you can take negative feedback, and you're self-aware of if you made a mistake. And I think it goes a long way when you admit to the people like let's just say that i i think you fucked something up right and i'll come and tell you you fucked something up and i'll go around like hey like you you know we need to this is how we need to be better whatever and if i find out that was wrong like my assumption was that you screwed something up but you actually didn't it was like something else happened then i have to own that and i have to be very direct about hey i'm sorry i fucked up i thought it was your fault it really wasn't your fault like i apologize and then move on I think a lot of people have big enough ego where, like, they just don't want to do that, and and then it screws up the culture because then it's like, oh, this guy's always right. And that's, like, I will the first one to admit that I'm wrong. You know, I'll question everything that, like, if I have an opinion, I want everybody else to validate it or have a discussion about, like, okay, what are we doing next? And I think that's where I've learned, like, leadership is so important because you want to make a firm decision when you are making it as a leader. But I think having everybody else's feedback and, like, thoughts before you make that decision and make like really thinking through it with them loops them in the process and then make sure that everybody's bought in right where like if you just you know if 10 people tell you like oh this is the wrong way and then you just go for it anyway like i think that doesn't create a good culture because then they feel like it's not one team
0: yeah yeah i gotta i gotta ask you now a question that probably everyone asked you that before because i know anyone like us get those questions when you cashed out what was your feeling (laughs)
2: um why why did you cash out i guess that's that's also a good question well let's start
0: with one question at hey, you a time sure. uh, why would you want to get a you know, couple why would you want to get a couple hundred million dollars I, I think it's but we can go back to it but when you cash okay. out when did you actually process that shit my life is different how long did it take you to process so
1: that? yeah i mean it's a great question right and it's funny because when i started my whole goal of the business was like one time at one point i want to sell and my goal was to sell it for more than 100 million and then i did you know it's kind of funny back to the napkin math that like if i sell it for 100 million i'll have five thousand dollars every day for the rest of my life to to live my life um so, you know then eventually i realized oh this actually now it works you know you first you pay taxes and then you actually can make money on your money so yeah. it was very naive like you know i was 21 years old uh math but that just you were sitting with head. us
0: in the EO group and he said i need 100 million then he came back actually i need more than 100 million actually <laughs> it's going to be enough because i mean it, it was it was really funny it was like okay, i want this rv to travel over the world i remember something like <laughs> that yes
1: by the way i just bought ah, congrats. two weeks ago nice yeah. but uh So, yeah, so anyway, so I had this dream of, like, one day I want to sell the company. I knew I didn't want to do the business forever, like, my whole life, right? We ran the process, um, you know, we didn't really know if we're going to sell the whole business through strategic or private equity, and then the process kind of ultimately ended up landing where it did, meaning selling, you know, half the company through private equity. And it was, um, the beauty was, like, I knew that it gives me options, right? So, like, at that time, like, I'm, you know, I've cashed out enough where I would have not had to work for the rest of my life but at the same time I still had a massive upside um, for the business to do really well and so it was kind of the best of, best of both worlds it didn't obviously give me the freedom to kind of like walk away and say okay like now I'm going to you know travel through Africa in my RV for a year but uh, it gave me enough financial freedom to be able to to know that I will be able to do it in the future and that I don't really have to worry about. You know, buying falafel
0: yeah. and uh, <laughs> falafel every day. As falafel much as you want. Day. Yeah. Falafel every day. You're good. You're falafel good. every
1: day. It's always my dream. Um, no, but it's it's so the feeling was um, honestly very it was it was when more did it hit
0: relief. it? Was it right away when you saw the no, money or was it? It after? wasn't
1: relief. It was it was our process was very stressful at the end because you know, we started in like the sum well, we started really in March and then COVID hit 2020. Nobody was doing anything. So then, over the summer, we were kind of prepping everything, talking to investors. September, we started getting offers. We got a massive amounts of offers, which felt really good, right? Then we kind of narrowed it down to like five, six. Went through the process. Ultimately, ended up, you know, picking the one that we picked. But throughout the last two weeks, like, there were so many uh, things that have changed between the offers we had, you know, valuations, terms. So like, it wasn't really until the the thing was signed, at like four in the morning, the day before Thanksgiving, that we knew. We have a deal done. And until that point, you're like, man, like, I can literally lose everything, you know? Like, it's like, well, not lose, but, you know, the deal, you can just all fall apart and the last six months are gone. So, that was super stressful. So, getting the deal done was incredible. And eventually, when I got the money, like, nothing's much changed, actually. But
0: you did feel something after, no?
1: I felt, um, I mean, I felt relieved. I felt, you know, I would say... I mean, I, I definitely there was a the, the, the temporary moment of happiness when you realize like, oh man, like this is really cool.
0: Did you feel a little bit of stress maybe with all that cash? Well,
1: I started feeling stress, not immediately, but I would say probably a couple months after when I really started to think about like where I'm going to invest this money. Yeah. Because you realize like, the money. man, like, you know, I've got all this cash. This is great, but it's a responsibility, right yeah. now. This was, remember, this was 20, like 21, when inflation started to come up to like 8, 9%. Yeah. And you're like, well, if you don't invest this money, by end of the year, it's 10% down in value, right? And so everybody was like, oh, you got to invest the money, you got to invest the money. And everything was so expensive, right? Like like everything, like stocks, companies, private equity, like real estate. So I was like, well, I, you know what? I, I think something bad's going to happen. I'm just going to hold on. And I only put a little bit of money to equities. And... Right now, I feel like the hero, you know, it's like yeah. I, I like I most of my investments. Well, most of my money is in cash. It's just sitting in the bank yeah. waiting to be deployed. Um, you know, I'm doing some stuff in like renewable energy and then a couple like private equity funds. But I'm just waiting for the right opportunity. Yeah, because
0: this is this is a journey that a lot of us go through. Right. It just there is that stress, especially when you see. I I'm mean, just, I, just I, I just saw the, the good. fact
2: that you said a lot of us go through and anybody listening is like, no, the stress, fire.
0: the people. Yeah, no, I mean, the stress, <laughs> the stress. yeah. Yeah, that is, yeah. yeah. The stressful part is because you, you go and you see how luxury goods went up like two times than yeah. what it was. I mean, yeah, what, we a, wanted shitty, to buy what a shitty or, thing for me. It's just not <laughs> a good, like everything went up. Watches. Wow, now, now
1: you can only buy one bag for yeah. $5,000, not yeah. two bags anymore. Yeah,
0: it's like there's nothing available. Everything is overpriced. Nothing, so it's like my money doesn't, and the inflation is the not Birken really accurate. Yeah, 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 yeah. A no, yacht no, is to no, 150000 anymore. <laughs> No, but the idea is that you know that, that it's a representation of the inflation. And you said, well, even if they say it's 8%, it's bullshit. It's not really 8%. Because try to buy a house in the islands right now. It went from 10 to 30. No, but, so, you know what,
1: but, but you know what I think is the biggest thing is the, for me at least, it was the anxiety of not knowing what I was doing. So, yeah. like, you ask me anything about logistics fulfillment. Like, I'm an expert. I'll tell you everything, right? Like, you can really surprise me. In investment or investing in general, I knew nothing about investing. Like I've never invested a dollar before that, right? Like I I was managing the company's money in a way, right? But it was very familiar environment. I think where this threw me off a little bit. It's like, okay, I got all this money and now I have to get into like a whole new industry with totally different roles, totally different KPIs, totally different like everything and trying to make money in that. And I think that's what it was giving me. So is that like
0: idea. that you felt like, okay, there are other top predators. I'm not one of them. It was and yeah it's exactly. Like,
1: it's like a, I'm like a you know I'm like um, a little like barista in a Starbucks yeah, like yeah. I like I have no idea what I'm doing right like this yeah. is kind of the level that I fell in that investment world. So like you're a you're a rockstar operator. You have a great company. You know you know a lot about operating a business. You walk into this new industry of like investing money and you realize you're nobody. Like you know nothing. You know yeah. nobody. So you start learning and then you realize every the more you learn the more you realize how much you don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then more you realize like everybody tells you different things. Like people don't really like. You know What's everybody has interest different interests in mind, mind. Yeah. and like it's it's really exciting but scary at the same time right and so like i've gone through an interesting journey over the last year and a half i, I would say i'm like on that journey to 100 maybe at 10 percent like i feel like you know and it's it's it, i feel more comfortable now but i still it still yeah. gives it's me a long mind. road it's a long yeah. road and, and it's hard to like and even the, the good ones don't
0: really invest. know that, that what you what bothers you is that even the really good ones they don't always win. They don't always know. It's not like logistic that if you know, you know, and it's, it's going to be okay. Like, yeah. But, but yeah, it's, it's a challenging business. What's your, um, actually I wanted, uh, it's, it's a side note. Um, there was a funny story you told me about a guy that got scammed with the $5,000, how he got a call and there was someone <laughs> in his company yeah get this email say hey this is jan oh, happened like three times since, by the three way three times really yeah yeah, yeah
1: yeah yeah. i mean it's it's uh, it i mean it's
0: yeah it's 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 actually it's good like for a, companies like phishing anyone yeah efficiency yeah. it's good for anyone that has a company to hear this out because it, it does happen yeah cyber security so, exposure them, yeah, yeah i mean it's
1: so so basically we would have a new employee and like every time we have a new employee somehow people find out their phone number i guess it's maybe when they change it on their linkedin whatever yeah. and then they'll get a text from me saying Hey, John, you know, you're available. Um, and they're like, oh, this is jam. And they're like, yeah, yeah like I'm available. They all want to impress me, right? And then they're like, well, you know, I kind of need you. Like we have a, an issue with a customer and I'm not available right now. Like, can you run and give me some like Target gift cards for this customer? And they're like, yeah, 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 sure. And so this guy, this was a new warehouse manager in California, went to Target, right? And then bought whatever, $500 gift cards and like scrapes them, text them back to, the, to me, he thinking, right? And then the guy's like, oh, thank you. Like, you're so amazing. And by the way, like, can you also go to Apple Store to buy more gift cards? So this guy <laughs> gets out of Target, goes to Apple Store, buys like $2,000 of gift cards. And by the way, the reason why it's 2000 is because they always cap it. You can't buy more than a certain amount. For, for fraud. probably fraud. Reasons, fraud, fraud. Right? Yeah. He goes there, buys these cards, pays. Then he goes to like Walmart and he just sends them to all these places, right? He ends up basically buying $13,500 of gift cards. Oh my God. The only reason he didn't buy more is because he wiped out his entire debit card account, right? Like he had no more money in his account. So that's why he stopped buying the cards. And then obviously, like, you know, then when he bought all them, he was like, oh yeah, thank you, you're so good. And then like, he submits a request for reimbursement, right, to the company. And we're like, what the fuck is this? And we just look at it and we're like, yeah, you just totally got scammed. Like it was a total phishing scam, you know? They just pretended from a random number to be me. And um, he didn't really think to question it. And it's happened. Like, I mean, it's happened a lot, but four other people actually end up buying some like oh cards. Oh, my God. Just pretty crazy, huh?
0: Yeah, it's insane. It's insane. I mean, uh, it's uh, it's something that we used to get all the time. People would get email, emails from me. The thing with me is that if I wanted to talk to you, I would come into your desk, knock on your door, whatever office. So people knew that wouldn't be Joe. So then I had to change my email address from what it was. Oh, you guys had like, a big scam
1: issue, right? Like, oh, yeah.
0: We had a different type of scam. Yeah, so we had a scam where someone... Somehow got through uh, the email through our uh, one of the brands we worked with, and they're supposed to send us a wire. So I guess they hacked their email, and they knew that they have to send us an email. So they sent us an email in their behalf, saying, "Hey, listen, uh, we we change our email our our wire instru- instruction. Can you send it over there? Hello. Now I'm I'm in the Philippines getting a call from my C my CFO saying, "Oh man, we gotta get a lawyer. Can you help me?". I'm like, "What are you talking about?". Anyway, he said, yeah, the, that company, uh, they, um, they didn't send us the money. And they said that we need to, uh, we need to go and uh, pay them. But we did pay them. I said, wait a minute. Did you check that we actually paid them? And then he said, yeah, we did. They just changed the email address. I said, and did you check that it was actually their email? Apparently, it wasn't their email. Okay, so we got scammed. Senor, you should have. Did you just send the different wire instructions oh based on God. some email without calling, verifying? Well, uh, anyway, it was, and then we got lucky. It was 17 and a half thousand. We, f- we caught it fast enough. We called the bank. The bank actually reversed Reverse it and, it. and, and we had insurance, but it was only 17 and a half. The next one was 750,000 because they already got into our email system. And then they found out there was one, f- they actually got into one girl's email. I guess that's, that's how we did that. We found. So then they found out there was another email there was another wire for seven hundred and fifty and then they said, Hey, can you wire us? By then we already knew. So we dodged a much bigger bullet. Something that's happened in my company, some
2: hacker has found a way without my password, because we've checked it, to spoof my actual email. Email, yeah. No, so that happened like my, my not a fake email, I, not like a look alike, like the exact That's how email. I got
1: scammed by Airbnb. Yeah, it's like
2: the craziest thing. So like, they, Airbnb? Yeah, so I, so I booked, this was a long
1: time. Well, this was like in the beginning, right? So I bought, uh, I rented a house for New Year's uh, for my parents, my wife's parents. Like, we all were gonna go to this house in the mountains and I booked it through Airbnb, right? And then I basically get an email from, like literally it came from airbnb.com address. Like it was like info at airbnb.com and the email had all the listing. It looked exactly like an Not. Airbnb's email and it said, hey, um, you know, thank you for like booking with Airbnb, like, in order to finish this payment, because this house is in Europe, which is, like, that's what I thought. Because in Europe, like, a lot of times you just pay with a wire to mm-hmm. pay for a accommodation, hotels, whatever. This was 2012 or something, so it wasn't as uncommon. And they were like, just wire this, you know, 4,000 <laughs> euros, whatever, to this to this uh, wow. bank account. In, in the UK, by the way, which was, like, in Bar- Barclays Bank. So it wasn't like I was wiring into to Kenya. Yeah. So I was like, oh, okay, it doesn't sound that weird. So I wired them the money. This is the craziest thing. And then... They send me the confirmation, your booking is confirmed, you know, here's like checking they send instructions, confirmation. everything, like the whole thing, right?
0: At least they're here's
1: saying a, But here's the craziest thing. Like, so nice. was So I was supposed to arrive, this was like from not, December 29th, then I was arriving on December 30th. My parents, my wife's parents came on December 29th to that house in Austria. Drove for 10 hours, right? They get to where the house <laughs> is supposed to be, the address, and they call me up and they're like, hey, there's no house here. And I'm like, wow. what do you mean there's no house they're like, yep, there's literally like it's an empty lot, and I'm just like, that doesn't make any sense. And so, I started like digging into it. I call ABM support, and they're like, Yeah, like we don't actually have any kind of confirmation from the seller, they didn't ever confirm that it's available. And like, sorry, and they never gave me my money back. Like, wow. it was, but somehow that email, their email was spooked, yeah, and
2: it wasn't like I don't know how people do it, but that's just, I don't know how they do it. But thank God my I'm team like knows it. me well enough because it's always cryptic. It's like, hey Scott, urgent, please text me back immediately. Or it's like, hey employee, it's Scott, it's urgent,
0: please text me back immediately. By the way, if you
1: were a scammer, like, isn't there a better way to do this? Like, don't be that obvious. Right? Yeah, like, right.
0: Like, the, like, you know, all these like misspellings, yeah, all this, all this yeah, all those issues. Like, you can you can totally make it much more uh, believable. Yeah. yeah, believable. Yeah, but well, you'd be very good at this job. Like, I if would you were amazing, like, you lived in amazing.
1: Kenya, I feel like you would have like a you know Absolutely. like a whole yeah.
0: rig of people and just yeah. like Lagos, Lagos, Lagos. Yeah. I, I would, I would have, I would automate Business. I would have yeah. built Listen, an AI. Honest I don't need any do any podcast. room with people. I would have had a good AI that can speak better than people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah they have yeah, that so. now? They have oh, AI yes. oh yes. Oh sure. Yeah. yeah,
2: it's crazy what you can do with AI now. Yeah. You can do AI. Years writing. ago, I heard, I heard uh, AI scamming. It's scary. AI scam. Well, I mean, it just combines it. it yeah. Combines AI
0: writing with somebody who can send an email. Oh my god. Yeah. Um. Yeah, we get scammed. awesome. Yeah, it's awesome. Getting scammed is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it's awesome. What an experience, guys! Experience. Yeah. That's how you live your life. You just get scammed, yeah, and then awesome. like there's nothing else to stops you. Uh, listen, John, I want to thank you for coming over, taking that that 44 minutes drive all the way from the islands in Miami to. <laughs> it was about like an, hour 15, okay. yeah, an hour and fifteen. An hour fifteen. Wow. Sorry about that, traffic. You know, so great seeing you. Great seeing you all too. Right. Yeah, and uh, we're going to probably have you again in our podcast. You're amazing and continue to succeed. Cool. Thank awesome. You. Thanks. Good stuff. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, man. Thank awesome. you. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward with each new idea, innovation, and partnership.